Good morning. Our second reading is from Romans chapter 8, verse 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, for whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. A while back I preached on verse 1 of this Romans 8 series, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I said that's because if you are trusting in Jesus then in God's eyes all the condemnation you deserve for your wrongdoing past and future has fallen on him on the cross so it will never fall on you. And I also said that means he will forgive and accept you forever. And that acceptance doesn't go up and down. We're not less accepted on our worst days and more accepted on our best. And someone came steaming up to me afterwards, very angry, and said, I cannot believe what you have just preached. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, you've just told us that it doesn't matter how we live. So I said, no, I just told you that God's acceptance of us doesn't depend on how we live. And he said, but it amounts to the same thing. And if you say that, people will just go out and sin. So I said, why will they? And he said, well, if they know they're accepted anyway, they'll just go out and do whatever they want. And I said, but I think you need to realise that when you know someone has died for you to get you accepted, it completely changes what you want. And that change is what last week's passage uh, was about, and Paul picks up the same theme in this week's. But before we go further, let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you that you are able not only to forgive and accept us forever, but also to change what we want. Help us to understand how you do that and how we need to respond. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's turn again to Romans 8, where this week Paul tells us to live your new life. So far, we've seen the two huge new things about a person who's come to faith in Jesus. The first is that through Jesus' work for them on the cross, they are forgiven and accepted forever. And the other is that through the Spirit's work in them, they now want to live for Jesus. That's their new mindset, as we saw last week in verse 5. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, i.e. on pleasing Jesus. Now, people sometimes say uh, God's Spirit is, is like the power supply we need to be plugged into if we're to change and live for Jesus, like a, a hoover needs to be plugged in in order to, to hoove. But it's a very bad illustration, actually, because it's impersonal. Because the fundamental thing that God's Spirit does is to help us see what Jesus did for us on the cross and through that come back into relationship with him. So talking about that in chapter 5, Paul says God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. 
So I don't know, you may remember a time before you came to faith when you knew about the Christian message, but you just didn't get why they went on and on about the cross. And then God, by his spirit, worked in your heart to help you see that Jesus was there for you out of love for you. And that completely changed what you want. So before you wanted life without Jesus, that was fine by you. Now you want to live for Jesus because of what he's done for you. That's how the spirit works. Through the gospel of the cross, he changes what we want and gives us new desires. So here's my first of two points this morning. Paul says, live out your new spirit-given desires. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. In other words, indebted to Jesus. I wonder when you last used that kind of language. I think of a friend who's recently had a life-saving operation who has repeatedly said she's indebted to the medical team. But this is even bigger because this is where the doctor gave his own life for us on the cross. So this is indebtedness that doesn't just feel grateful, but wants to live gratefully for him in response. Verse 12 again. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And as we heard last week, the flesh is Bible speak for the whole realm of fallen humanity. As someone had said, if you knock the H of flesh and then read it backwards, you get pretty much the main idea, self. So the flesh is the whole realm uh, where people believe the universe revolves around themselves and God does not even enter their minds. And if we are trusting in Jesus, that is the realm we were in, uh, that is the realm from which we still have all sorts of residual sinful habits and weaknesses. And that is the realm we're surrounded by and tempted by. But we owe it nothing because it offers only spiritual death. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Have a look at this first picture. The crown at the top stands for God. Uh, and the Lord Jesus, but it's crossed out because that stick person is living according to the flesh, doing what he wants as if God wasn't there. But as we saw last week, that is a trajectory to death and judgment. And the sobering thing is that people can be on that trajectory and yet think they're Christians, call themselves Christians, even be in positions of Christian leadership. So, for example, you may have heard of this new Church of England resource called Living in Love and Faith. And it basically promotes the message that you can be a Christian and still live various sexual lifestyles other than heterosexual marriage. Whereas Paul and the other Bible writers would say those who are living like that in a settled, unrepentant way are giving evidence of still being on that trajectory in my first picture. By contrast, second half of verse 13, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here's my second picture where our stick person has now come to faith in Jesus. Uh, let's call her she. So she started out on the bottom arrow, uh, as we all do by nature, and then she heard the gospel that Jesus died for her so that she could be forgiven back into relationship with him. And as she heard that, and as the Spirit helped her to see that, it completely changed what she wants. So now she's on that 
top arrow. She's going in a completely different direction. So before she didn't give Jesus a thought, now her whole aim is to live for him. And it would be lovely to say that she's now sinless and she does that perfectly and consistently, but it's not true. And it won't be this side of heaven. So for the rest of her life, she'll have to say what John Newton, the converted slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace, once said, I am not what I should be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I one day shall be in glory, but by the grace of God, I am not what I once was. I wonder if you can say that. Because if so, it's evidence that you are also on that top arrow, on that trajectory in a relationship with Jesus that will last forever. And the second half of verse 13 shows that Paul didn't think anyone on that top top arrow is sinless uh, or above temptation. Because he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, you'll be giving evidence that you're on that top arrow of life with Jesus. So Paul knew that even on that top arrow, we still have in ourselves the capacity for all sorts of sinful deeds of the body. We still have all sorts of residual sinful habits and weaknesses. And he says, put those things to death. That is to be our attitude to sin brutal and uncompromising. And he says, put them to death by the Spirit. But that doesn't mean there is a magic formula I can give you of how to plug into the Spirit's power in moments of temptation, which make it all easy. What it means is that we resist sin by living out our spirit-given desires intentionally and consistently and by developing habits of godliness to help with that. So, for example, there is no magic formula to plug into the spirit's power uh, to make the temptation of pornography just evaporate in the moment. Instead, the spirit works in us by giving us new desires for purity, for an unclouded relationship with God, for faithfulness to our spouse, uh, for honoring sexuality and other people. And we then have to live out those new desires intentionally, which I would say has got to involve internet accountability, internet accountability software with the help of godly friends. It's got to involve cutting off other avenues of temptation. It's got to involve learning to work against the loneliness or boredom or stress or whatever it is that makes us prone and so on and so on. So that's the first thing that Paul says here. Live out your new spirit-given desires. And as we do, albeit imperfectly, we will be reassured that our relationship with God is real, that we are on that top arrow of my picture. That's what verse 14 says. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, some Christians uh, use that word uh, led to talk about God's guidance. For example, you know, I I felt led to phone so-and-so, and sure enough, it turned out they needed help. Uh, That's the guidance of an inner prompting uh, attributed to God. Uh, Or, for example, God led me to study in Newcastle. That's the guidance of God's sovereignty over their decision to apply and the uni's decision to let them in. But verse 14 is not about guidance. It's just a different way of describing what Paul has already been saying. We are led by the Spirit when when we live out, when we follow the new desires that he's put inside us. And Paul says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are 
sons of God. That's how you spot them. In other words, living out the new desires he gives us is evidence that our relationship with God is real and that we are his children, beginning, albeit imperfectly, to look like father, like child. And that links to the other thing Paul says here, which is be assured of your security as children of God. Look on to verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Now, you may wonder why this translation doesn't say children throughout rather than sons, to be more inclusive. But in Paul's day, it was the sons who were the heirs. And since he wanted a picture of a secure relationship with God leading to us inheriting glory, he hit on adopted sons. So if you're a woman, you need to read yourself into this picture of a son. Uh, Just like in Ephesians 5, we men have to read ourselves into the picture of the church as the bride of Christ. So verse 15 again, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Because he knew that slavery and fear summed up his reader's pre-Christian experience. So most were Gentiles, uh, converted from worshipping Roman gods, where you always had that fear of, have I done enough to keep all of them on side? Have I been to the temple enough? Have I made enough offerings? And so on. Uh, And with those familiar with Buddhism or Hinduism or ancestor worship, uh, you'll know all about that. But some were Jews converted from living under the Old Testament law, which constantly reminded them that they hadn't kept it fully and that they never could. And no one I've talked to from the two religions of law, Judaism and Islam, has ever had any assurance that God accepted them. So slavery and fear is how Paul sums up non-Christian religion, the slavery of trying to do enough and the fear that you haven't and can't. So verse 15 again, for you who've come to faith in Jesus did not receive that kind of spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that's saying that as the Spirit brings us to faith in Jesus through the gospel, we experience something uniquely different from all the other beliefs and religions around. And it's the experience of being adopted sons. And amazingly, it means we can approach God with the same kind of assurance and access as Jesus, the actual Son of God. That's the point of the bit that says, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, because that was how Jesus addressed his father in prayer, Abba, which was the Aramaic word that little children would call their daddies. Now, occasionally in the Old Testament, God is called the father of Israel, but no one had ever addressed God like Jesus, because needless to say, the son of God's access to his father and oneness with his father is unique. And yet, verse 15 reminds us that we are invited to share his access. 
And when we do, when we pray, we often find ourselves thinking, don't we? You know, God shouldn't be opening the door to me. God shouldn't be listening to me, not knowing what I'm really like, not after what I've done or, or, or done again. And Paul says that is when the Spirit wants to help us pray anyway and wants to reassure us that even as the grotty, sinful, ongoing failures that we are, we really do have access to God as a Father who loves us despite what we are. And the Spirit does that through the Gospel. Here's the thing to get. The Spirit always works through the Gospel. That's why I said at the start, the fundamental thing he does is to get us to see what Jesus did for us on the cross to see that the actual Son took our rightful place as condemned sinners so that we might share his rightful place as adopted sons. Last year, I took the funeral <clears throat> of the father of three children that I grew up with, and uh, two of them were adopted. <clears throat> and they each gave me something to read out. And one said this, what I will miss most about Dad is him just being there for me, because he has always been the one solid constant in my life. So thank you, Dad, for all you've done for me, and along with Mum, I will always feel lucky that all those years ago, you adopted me. And he was just an imperfect earthly father compared to the perfect heavenly one that we have through Jesus. So that's the other thing Paul says here. Be assured of your security as children of God. And that goes hand in hand with that first thing. Live out the new desires that the Spirit has given you. Because we will never do that without failure, this side of heaven. Every day we will still sin. And that's why we need to be assured that we really are securing God's love as his adopted children. And the Spirit would say to us, if you want me to do that for you, then keep your eye on the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again that your Son took our place so that we might share his place in your love. And thank you for your Spirit giving us the eyes to see that and the faith to respond. Please may he strengthen our desires to please you, our will to put sin to death, and our assurance that through the ups and downs of our obedience, we remain children in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.